a lot of frying yogurt. Know, really, like, is that's what's putting. <laughs> it's real gross. Like you make it sound what disgusting. What do people use yogurt for when they're making cornflake chicken? Welcome to the 100th episode of the Four Corners Crimecast. My name is Jake. My name is Rory. And I'm your host, Katie. And today we are continuing our series on Israel Keys. And just to recap, where did you do your research on this one, Katie? The book for this one was American Predator by Maureen Callahan. And this one was also recommended by Elise, Jake's sister. My sister. And, you know, normally she's not so smart. But she picked a good one this time. (laughs) 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 She knows I'm kidding. She's real smart. Just edit that out, Rory. Okay. Don't edit that out. Where did we leave off last week, Katie? When we left off last week, Texas Rangers and FBI agents had just pulled over the man they believed to have kidnapped Samantha Koenig. After finding her license in his wallet, they knew that Israel Keys was their prime suspect. Top-notch police work there. Back in Anchorage, the team was busy finding out as much information as they could on Keys. He had no criminal history and was practically non-existent in their system. They were able to find his home address, a house owned by Kimberly Anderson, Keys' girlfriend. At 9.30, the team headed over to the address with a horde of other law enforcement, prepared to make entry and hopefully find Samantha. Did he have fingerprints? Did they have his fingerprints? No, he'd never been arrested before, so no. Fingerprints. (laughs) Did they have fingerprints? Okay, so the fingerprintless man, they're looking for him. He has fingerprints, just not in the system. When Detective Bell arrived, he noticed the white Chevy pickup that they'd seen in the Home Depot security footage, the one Samantha was placed into after being kidnapped from the coffee kiosk. He realized that not long after watching the footage, they'd actually checked out Keyes' truck and address, but it had been ruled out. Was his truck also a white Chevy? Yes. Yes, that's why he noticed it. Oh, so wait. This white Chevy and the one that they checked out, they were the same truck? Yeah, they had already been oh. to his address and looked at his truck. They knew they were looking for a white Chevy, but obviously that's not a very specific car to be looking for, so they looked at all of them. But why was he ruled out specifically? They didn't say exactly, but I assume that, one, he had been out of town, and two, there's nothing suspicious going on that would make them think he had a kidnapped woman in his home. Interesting. And or shed. Okay. Detective Bell was left wondering if they'd have rescued Samantha in time had they searched the truck more thoroughly. When Kimberly was interviewed, she was adamant that Keyes had been home the entire night of February 2nd when Samantha disappeared. She said he'd even come into her bedroom several times, not mentioning exactly why the two slept in separate rooms. Are we 100% sure that she was his girlfriend? They were... In that weird, like, liminal stage where you're still dating, but you don't want to be dating anymore, but no one's, like, actually said it. And Ah. so they're living together, sleeping in separate rooms. They have a kid. Pretending. This is not, this is Keith's daughter. It's not her daughter. okay. So you got to leave room for Jesus, Jake. Oh, so you just leave a a room, right? Like a hallway. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Jesus needs a wide berth. Back in Texas, Keys was only being held on fraud with an access device not something Alaska would be willing to extradite him for. Wait, what's that? It's basically just using her debit card through an ATM. Okay. Which he had already been caught for now at this point. Yes. Okay. Because they had him on the surveillance footage using the card, and eventually they find the card. Detectives had to get him talking and hope that he would admit to some part of Samantha's disappearance. 
When they checked his wallet more carefully, they found Samantha's debit card tucked in a back compartment with the pin number scratched into the surface. To them, this was all the evidence they needed. To the higher-ups, they would need a lot more. This is the debit card that they put the five grand on and had been tracking? Mm-hmm. And they needed more than that? To prove that he murdered her, yes. So, let me get this straight. These detectives do this exemplary detective work What's of checking. <laughs> they do this exemplary detective work here. They dig all the way to the back of the wallet. They find the debit card, and they go through all the trouble to flip it over. Detective Bell and Detective Dahl flew out to Texas the day after Key's arrest. Even though the case wasn't officially APDs anymore, they planned to have Detective Dahl do most of the interviewing. When asked why he had Samantha's debit card and license, Keyes was quick to tell a story. When asked why he had Samantha's debit card and license, Keyes was quick to tell a story. He explained that a few weeks ago, someone had tossed a Ziploc bag in his window onto the front seat of his pickup truck. Inside was a cell phone and a debit card with the pin scratched onto it. He assumed that one of his customers had left it as a form of payment for a construction job he'd done for them. He was in, like, he owned a construction business? Mm-hmm. I mean, why would he think that someone was paying him by just tossing the card, like, a card on his front seat? Oh, he, I mean, he didn't. This was just a story that he was hoping they I would I mean, quick believe. thought story is pretty good. It's I mean, not. it shouldn't have been that quick either because he's had literally almost, um, like, I think a month and a half to think of the story. I mean, for that, though, is more plausible than, oh... Whatever else he could come up with. What story would you come up that would explain that? I found it. <laughs> he did come up with that story, but he had a little panache. <laughs> See, that's how you can tell it's a lie is because he's going way above and beyond like anybody literally ever paid for a yeah. construction job with a, like, here, just take my debit card. I found it right before I went out of town and I haven't had time to drive to the address on the license and return it. This is why Katie could murder us all and never get caught. That's right. Keyes insisted he had nothing to do with Samantha's disappearance. Interestingly, Keyes' mother, Heidi, was just as quiet as he was. When they explained to her that her son might have information regarding a missing teenager and they needed her to get him talking, she told them she couldn't help them and, quote, if God wants that girl to be found, she'll be found. Obviously, protecting her child was more important than potentially saving the life of another. God wants this woman to be eaten by a bear. His mom... Seems kind of like a bitch. Um, we're, we'll get into that more in part three, but yeah, she's not a good person. Wait, can you go back and say your last line again, Roar? A few hours later, Detective Deb Ganaway went to Heidi's house for another attempt. Although she was willing to give them some background on her son, she still wasn't fond of the idea of helping their case. She explained that one of Key's sisters had recently been married, and that's what brought him to Wells, Texas. He and his daughter had arrived March 8th around 10 p.m. after flying from Anchorage to Seattle, Seattle to Las Vegas, then renting a car and driving to Texas. Was any of that true? It was all true. It was all true. Because isn't that, didn't he give a story about when he got arrested about being there for his sister's wedding or some shit? Yeah, it was just really long and drawn out and had a lot of really unnecessary information. Because that's just how this guy rolls. Keyes had also taken a trip with an odd travel pattern back in February. He had flown again from Anchorage to Seattle, Seattle to Houston, then drove to New Orleans to take a cruise to Mexico with Kimberly and his daughter. 
After the five-day cruise, Keyes and his daughter returned to Houston and visited Heidi. On February 13th, the day before their flight back to Anchorage, Keyes vanished. He wrote a note on his bed that read, Gone to fix the window and find a place to hide my guns. Two hours after he'd left, a family member texted to let him know they could take his guns. It wasn't until much later that night that Keyes answered, letting them know he was stuck in the mud in the middle of nowhere. Was fix the window and hide his guns code word for something? No, apparently it was common to just, like, hide your guns in this family. They just have caches. It's one of those families that just has caches of guns hidden all around Texas. Literally. <laughs> they didn't hear from him again until the next day, when he texted to let them know he was in a parking lot at a shopping center about an hour away. They drove their van to pick him up, but when they arrived, Keys wasn't there. They slept in the parking lot that night, and finally the next day he called, letting them know he was actually on the other side of the mall. Was this the Mall of America, by chance? No, they're in Texas. Right. That's what I thought. So, <laughs> I think the Mall of America is like the only mall in America that you could just be on the other be side. On the other side well, of. and it wasn't even, he was still in his car. They were just in opposite parking lots. So, like, they didn't drive around, and then they slept there. They didn't just go home and come back. Yeah, that's weird. It was just all around, but apparently this was very odd behavior for him. When they finally met up, he was incoherent and his car covered in mud. He claimed that he'd run out of gas, his credit cards had been frozen, and he hadn't eaten or slept in two days. Was he actually out just burying a body? I think he was robbing a bank, honestly. Robbing a bank? Yeah. Some real outlaw shit? Yeah, basically. Oh. Well, did he have a bunch of money after this? Is he rolling in it? I don't know if anyone ever checked. I think when someone says, I'm going to go hide my guns, you don't really, like, inquire about other things that they might have with them. Although Heidi said that this was extremely out of character for Keyes, no one questioned him. Instead, she purchased him two more plane tickets and sent him on his way back to Anchorage. The day before he was set to leave, he disappeared again, this time only for a day. To hide more guns? I don't think he said this time. I think he just left. When he returned, he had $900 in cash to pay Heidi back for the plane tickets. And again, no one questioned where he'd been or how he got the money. So then he missed his his flight again? No, he showed up like right in time to pay her back and then take his daughter, who he just left with his family this whole time, I guess. Well, you know, you can't be drugged down by burdens like children when you're... Robbing banks. Robbing banks and abducting other children. Somehow, detectives were able to convince Alaskan authorities to extradite Keyes back to Anchorage, and he arrived on March 30th. The first thing he did was ask to speak to Steve Payne. There were two stipulations to the interview, though. The death penalty had to be off the table, and little, if no, information was to be released to the media. Was he trying to, like, keep himself, like, keep his image up? He was trying to protect his daughter. Oh. He didn't want her name tied to him forever. Well, then... This is what we're going to do. His daughter's name is... <laughs> of course, the team was extremely hopeful that Keyes would confess, and with the top-notch interrogators they were going to put into the room with him, it was more likely than not. After planning out how they were going to conduct the interview, their idea was dashed when the top federal prosecutor in Alaska, Kevin Feldes, practically shoved his way into the room. The U.S. Attorney's Office, meaning him and his, and his assistant, Frank Russo, would be leading the interview, and the FBI would just be there for backup. He would do most of the talking, and no one was going to tell him otherwise. 
There was so much wrong with this, the most important being that Feldus would be the one prosecuting the case, which could make anything he said inadmissible in court, if he did make even the slightest wrong move. The interview room at the U.S. Attorney's Office also wasn't set up for interrogating criminals. There were no cameras, audio, and it looked more like a conference room. Police interview rooms are set up in a very specific way to make the suspect feel the most trapped. Generally, they're small, windowless, and the suspect is shoved into a corner and surrounded by detectives. This is to induce the feeling that they have no escape unless they give the detectives the information they need. Sounds like detectives are just bullies when you put it that way. They are psyops, special operatives, trained in mind tactics, bro. They're made to make you feel like you did something wrong no matter what you do. Luckily for Feldus, Keyes was willing to talk with no encouragement. Almost immediately, he dove into the story of Samantha's kidnapping. During the week before February 2nd, he'd driven to the Home Depot parking lot and watched the coffee kiosk, learning the comings and goings of its customers. After a few stakeouts, he decided to rob it. He'd never met Samantha, but rather chose the kiosk because it was open late. He approached at 7.55, five minutes before closing time, and asked Samantha for an Americano. Even though someone was sitting in their car in the parking lot, Keyes pulled his gun and told Samantha he was robbing her. He came prepared with a police scanner playing in his ear, which would advise him if Samantha hit the panic button and police were on their way. The rest of the story went exactly as it had in the security camera footage. Keyes tied Samantha's hands behind her back, entered the kiosk through the window, and eventually left with her. As they were walking back to his truck, he found a brand new camera on the ground. As he bent down to pick it up, Samantha escaped and ran. Keyes, having a major height advantage, caught up to her quickly and tackled her. Pointing his gun to her ribs, he told her he would kill her if she tried anything else. After putting her in the truck, he began driving, explaining to her that he was only going to hold her for ransom. After only a few minutes of driving, they pulled up to a red light. Directly next to the passenger side, a cop car stopped, two officers inside. Keyes sat and waited to see what Samantha would do. This would likely be her last chance at escaping. Apparently believing that Keyes was only after money, Samantha sat, eyes forward, unmoving, until the light turned green and they pulled away. Fuck that. Always scream when you see the police and you're kidnapped. Do you think that he was sweating, like, big time? No, I don't think he cared at all. He has no emotional reaction. Keyes took her to the park, where a group of skiers walked past the truck. Again, another chance at escape was passed up by Samantha, who sat quietly in the front seat. Keyes cleaned out the back seat of his car and zip-tied her hands to the seat belt, making her lie down and cover her in cloths. Keyes originally planned to drive to Walmart and purchase a burner phone to make the ransom demand, but changed his mind once he realized how many people, aka potential witnesses, would be there. Instead, he decided to drive back to the coffee kiosk for Samantha's cell phone. He'd also have forgotten to lock the door, which would make it more obvious that something was amiss. If the door was locked, it would look like Samantha had closed up and left on her own. Was there footage of him returning to the kiosk? I don't know, actually. If there was, they never released it, but I don't think there was. It was never mentioned. He's telling him this whole story, and he's just like, Hey, did you check the... After he left, did you check the footage? Nope, there was no footage. The camera broke. Camera was looking down. Well, the lights were off, so, like, I uh, mean, you guys watched it. You could barely see Samantha and him in there, so. It just seems like that's a little piece of, like, 
Oh, he came back to the kiosk, and they didn't know that until now? Well, maybe they weren't searching for someone to come back four hours later after she disappeared. They found the disappearance. Boom. That's what they needed. Why would they continue on the next? Probably would have something to do with, like, detective school, and they tell you. Once he had Samantha's phone, he got back on the road. In an attempt to be more humane, he agreed to stop and let Samantha go to the bathroom at a nearby park. How nice of him. Once again, there were people nearby, but Samantha made no move to escape. She shared a cigar with Keys, and the two chatted before he put her back into the truck. After stopping for gas, he drove to his house, the one he shared with his girlfriend Kimberly and young daughter. He had a shed already set up with a tarp on the floor, heaters running, and a radio. Sometime between 1 and 2 a.m., he blindfolded Samantha and led her to the shed. He tied a rope around her neck and screwed it into the wall, the whole time Samantha being completely cooperative. Once he was sure she couldn't get away... He went to her house and retrieved her license from her truck, which is when Dwayne saw her, him in the driveway. He then headed towards an ATM, but realized that he didn't know the PIN number for the debit card. He had to turn around, go back home, ask Samantha for the PIN, then go back out once again. After all the running around he'd just done, when Keys checked the debit account, there was a whopping 94 cents. Did this hurt his, like, uh, morale as far as his theory of getting a ransom out of this no he knew that he would get money either way because i mean realistically when there's a kidnapping and they ask for ransom someone's gonna have the money it's gonna usually be the police and they're gonna somehow get it to you and it's gonna be marked but you'll get the money wait 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 so you're saying ransoms work well no because it's (laughs) marked and then when you spend it all the detectives, FBI agents, and attorneys that were listening to the interview were shocked by the absolute confidence Keyes had that he would go completely unnoticed by the dozens of potential witnesses he'd passed by the entire night. It's also extremely important to note that Keyes did all of this the night before he was set to leave for his five-day cruise, the one that required him to fly to Seattle, then Vegas, then drive to New Orleans. Keyes called for a cab at 5 a.m., leaving him two hours after he returned home from the ATM to do whatever he planned to do with Samantha. That story he would only tell to Detective Dahl. Why did he have so much confidence that nobody was going to do, like, that no one was going to notice him and he could just do this the whole time? Because nothing was suspicious. I mean, realistically, the only thing that was maybe slightly suspicious was when she broke away and ran the first time. But besides that... After that, he was probably feeling even more brazen. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody even looked. Yeah, he basically, when she did that, he told her to act like she was drunk and had just fallen down. Hmm. And he only trusted Detective Dahl? He was only down to talk to Detective Dahl? Um, I think that was more of like a weird, sick fantasy thing that he was going to describe how he killed her to a woman. Fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. The next day, Detective Dahl sat down with Keyes, who began his story where he'd left off. After returning home from the ATM, he poured two glasses of wine, one for him, one for her. In the shed, he unscrewed the rope from the wall and cut her ties, letting her think that there was still hope she'd make it out alive. Instead, he tied her again, this time with more complicated knots. After checking on Kimberly, who was awake, Keyes went back to the shed and raped Samantha twice. She tried to convince him to let her live, but his mind had been made up as soon as they walked out of the kiosk. He stabbed her once in the back, but according to Keyes, it wasn't to make her die faster. It was quote-unquote something else that he wouldn't explain. 
He strangled her to death, then finished his wine and went back inside his house to get ready for his trip. And Kimberly, that's his girlfriend's name, right? Mm-hmm. Kimberly slept through this whole ordeal? I don't know if she was asleep, but she definitely did not bother him while he was doing whatever he was doing. That was the plan all along, right? That's why he set up a rape room with the heaters and everything. Yeah, he said that his original plan was just to rob her, but I don't believe any aspect of that. I don't think you can go from just wanting to rob somebody to having a premeditated rape room. Mm-hmm. Oh, was there, was that shed, like, soundproofed? Was it fancy soundproofing or something? No. Probably turned the radio up real loud. It was just, I mean, but she didn't scream. She wasn't loud. Oh, it that's was. True. She thought she was going to survive, so. And I'm sure she thought while he was raping her that if she just let him do that, he would let her go. And we don't know what the something else was in regards to him stabbing her in the back? He never specifically said, but I'm sure it was like a sexual thing, which it usually is with stabbing and these kind of people. After waking his daughter and getting her ready, Keyes went back into the shed, wrapped Samantha's body in a tarp, and hid it inside the cabinets. Because it was so cold, he knew that he didn't have to worry about her decomposing quickly while he was away on a cruise. He also knew he'd left absolutely zero forensic evidence behind anywhere and would likely never be a suspect. How do you know that he left zero forensic evidence behind? He was extremely careful to not leave anything. Oh, he was like Dexter. Yes, yes. Last week Bad I had comparison. a little. Yeah, last week I had a little Dexter fupa. You know, I was wrong about it. Keys returned to Anchorage on February 18th, right as the weather was beginning to warm up. On the 21st, after his daughter had gone to school and while Kimberly was still out of town, Keys began tearing out everything inside the shed. Not touching the cabinet where Samantha's body was, he chopped everything into firewood. He then unwrapped Samantha's body from the sleeping bag, foam mat, and tarp, and placed everything into a contractor bags. By the time he was done with all of this, he had to pick his daughter up from school. Once they'd done her homework, made dinner, and put her to bed, he used the indoor fireplace to burn anything Samantha had touched. Did he use the term contractor bags? Yes. So like hefties? I don't know exactly what they are. I think for putting, like, sharp materials in when you tear down a house. Oh, okay. Once again returning to the shed, Keys lined everything in plastic tarp, then strung her body from the ceiling and walls. Keys then had sex with her body for a long period of time, so long that his daughter woke up and came knocking on the shed door looking for him. So what drove the necrophilia in Keys? I don't know what you mean by the question. Was it like a spurt-of-the-moment thing, or was this just him acting out of fantasy? Is this something that he's always been into? Is this like something he's looking for as a product to fulfill a sexual fantasy, or is it just the body was there and he decided to do it? It's hard to say because he's never been terribly like open about his sexual deviance, but we'll get into next week. There's another crime where he did kind of a similar thing, so I think he just wanted to have sex with anything and everything, and the more sadistic it was, the better for him. Okay. After fulfilling his parental duties and dropping his daughter off at school, he's wrote the ransom note he was planning on leaving for the police that night. So he was planning to kill her all along and still try to get a ransom? Yeah. That was the six-month thing? Mm-hmm. He did something else for the rest of the school day, we're not sure what, then went to Target for a Polaroid camera after picking his daughter up from school. 
They didn't have the film, so he had to wait until that night after his daughter had gone to bed to leave for another store an hour away. He also purchased a foam sled, tote bags, carbon ribbon paper for a typewriter, a sewing kit, and fishing line. He also went through a dumpster and found a copy of the newspaper dated February 13th that he'd used in the ransom photo. And his daughter was home alone, sleeping, while he was out doing all of this. Well, but he had done his parental duties. He fed her. And he's like, all right, good luck. He spent the rest of the night putting makeup on Samantha and posing her for the ransom photos, attempting to make her look alive. Because she'd been dead for three weeks at this point, there wasn't much Keys could do. He tried to use superglue to give her eyes expression, but that didn't work. Instead, he used the sewing kit and fishing line to pull the muscles tight and give her an expression. Obviously, he did a fairly decent job, as if you recall, the FBI snuff film expert couldn't tell if she was dead or alive in the photo. I'm going to chalk this one up to the poor photo quality, like the picture of the picture, because... That was the intention. Yeah, I don't think he could have been that good. He's just diluting it. It's like when you see a picture and a picture and a picture and a picture and it just keeps going because it's digital. It just makes it that much worse knowing that that picture is on the internet and she is deceased and her eyes are sewn open. It's pretty fucking brutal, actually. I don't know why the FBI would ever have released that, but... Well, they, what, they thought she was alive at the time when they released it, maybe? I don't think they released it during the investigation. Oh. Federal Bureau of Idiots. And I don't know for sure that it was them, but it's it definitely got leaked from them. I mean, Freedom of Information Act, though, would allow a press person to get these photos, though, correct? Like I don't know. They, any... they may have to sue for them, but they would still be able to get these photos and interviews and shit like that. Because the Keys investigation, the whole, whole, whole Keys investigation is still active, I don't know if you could do a FOIA on that. I think she, didn't the lady that wrote this book do it on a whole bunch of that shit? Like, didn't most of her information come from her having to sue the, whoever she sued to get this information? I know she interviewed a lot of the detectives and the agents that worked on it. I don't Mm -hmm. know. I mean, she might, I don't know a whole lot about federal FOIAs, so. Interesting. Because this would be a federal, not a state FOIA. Yeah. The fuck's a FOIA? Free Free Information Act quest. After taking the pictures, Keyes wrote the ransom note and prepared everything to be dropped off at the park. His idea was to convince everyone she'd been sold into sex slavery in Mexico. But if you pay me, then I'll go get her back from Mexico? Like, the cartel's just going to return her from sex slavery? I'm not entirely sure what his train of thought was on this. I think it was like a last minute random idea. That's why he grabbed the newspaper that said the 13th, because apparently that's how long it would take you to drive from Mexico to... Mm. Anchorage. Huh. So it would be like he dropped her off and then... I I honestly don't know. <laughs> a lot of the things he does doesn't make any sense, but it makes sense to him because he has a deranged thought process. He could have just told him that he took her on a cruise and she got lost. He's traveling everywhere. Keys dropped the ransom note off at Connor Bog Park and sent the text to Dwayne from Samantha's phone. He then had to figure out how to get Samantha's body out of his shed with no one noticing. Kimberly was home from her trip, and she had a friend staying at the house with them. She knew not to go near the shed, but was beginning to get irritated with how distant Keys had been recently. Do you wonder what she told her friend to keep her away from the shed? Um, I think she probably just told him, don't go in the shed. (laughs) I mean, how often do you, like, stay with a friend that you don't stay with often and go snooping through their shed? 
Oh. Well, when someone says, hey, don't go in the shed. She probably didn't even have to tell him. You don't just go into somebody's shed just because you're at their house. Sure. What would you need from the shed? I feel like the shed was just all dilapidated, dark wood with a cloud over it. I think it was probably actually a really nice shed with a lock on the front. I mean, he was a construction worker, so I'm sure it was pretty tall Made of ice? He's had no money, he spent all of his time somewhere besides home, and he was drinking much more than usual. Fortunately for Keyes, Kimberly didn't ask questions. He spent the next night dismembering Samantha's body, and the next three days driving back and forth from his house to Man... Ooh, I'm gonna mispronounce this. Mantanuska Lake? That seemed legit. The first day, he set up a small ice fishing shack and drilled a large hole in the ice before wading some of Samantha's remains and dropping them into the water. He didn't stay long because he had a parent-teacher conference at his daughter's school right afterwards. Practically father of the year. That's At least he's got his priorities straight. He's like, now you get yourself ready. I'll come pick you up. He repeated the process over the next two days, each time taking a tote full of remains to the lake and dropping them in the water. On the third day, after he was finished disposing of her body, Keyes used the same spot to go ice fishing. Did he actually catch anything? I honestly hope he didn't. I don't think so. I don't think he mentioned. I don't think that was, like, something they were going to ask in the interview. Oh, he didn't tell him that he caught a fish this big? Well, I feel like it would have been a little bit sus if he had gone out four days and not come back with a fish. A lake fish. Lake's dried up. <laughs> but I'm still sitting on ice. Dropping my line into an empty hole. I mean, he was in a shed, so he had like a little shack set up, and one of the dive team members said that it looked suspiciously close to the Unabomber's cabin. Oh, shit. So, but I'm, I don't know how success, successful ice fishing usually is. Pretty successful. Quite successful. Is my it? Uncle Larry I don't does know. it. He takes it, goes out and sets up his shack on the lake, he drills the hole. And then he pulls walleye and muskie and northern pike out of the hole. So, I, maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. I'm not sure. Okay. Detectives were easily able to find the hole Keyes had cut in the lake and called in the FBI's dive team. The lead diver, Bobby Chacon, had been on the dive team for over 20 years and knew his team would be able to recover Samantha's body quickly and quietly, not drawing too much attention in order to provide the family as much privacy as possible. They began on April 2nd, first hitting the lake with a sonar. Samantha's body was in five pieces at the bottom of the lake. The weights made it slightly more difficult to get her to the surface, but by 9 p.m., Samantha's body had been recovered. Anchorage as a whole began the mourning process. No, they find Oliver? Mm-hmm. I mean, well, she'd been frozen in a lake, basically, so... And then there were weights, too, mm-hmm. so I guess it kind of kept it all... Now that Israel Keyes was officially their killer, detectives began looking into his background. They'd gotten a few tips about him on a tip line, most of them from customers of his construction business. No one called in to see if he'd received the random kidnapped girl's debit card that they left on his front seat as payment. A lot of people had nothing but good things to say about Keyes. He was friendly, a hard worker, and completely trustworthy. Others, though, said that Keyes gave them the creeps. Nothing ever actually happened, but something about Keyes just gave him that sinking feeling that something was very, very wrong with him. It's entirely possible this was hindsight bias in action, but given that Keyes was a full-blown psychopath, I trust these people truly felt this way. 
Everyone's met at least one person who just immediately makes your stomach knot up and you want to run out of the room as fast as you can. And I imagine Keys was that person for a lot of people. We had a guy like that who used to come into the store and buy rats. He was so creepy. I think it's a little different for women. They're all just men. <laughs> yeah, every time a man looks at me, I just go the other way. But no, there's like genuinely people that like look at you and you just... You know they're you know thinking about wearing wrong. their skin or something like yeah. that. Yeah, they've got bodies. It's a very like, visceral feeling. Someone also called and told detectives that Keyes had been using an internet alias to post comments on local news sites who posted about Samantha's disappearance. Another act of brazenness that no longer surprised detectives. The alias was Miserable Bees. I don't get it. Israel Keys, Miserable Bees. Oh, no. He literally, I think he just used Israel. <laughs> I don't think he was even that creative. He was just com commenting as a whole country. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it was Israel Jeez. Another caller reported that Key's sister was part of a gun-toting, David Koresh-following, white supremacist church located in Wells, Texas, and that Keys was also a member. This was never confirmed, but we'll come back to the white supremacy next episode. <laughs> By church, you mean cult, right? I'm basically, yeah. Probably the most shocking piece of evidence came from Key's computer. They'd only confiscated two computers, a third laptop Keys had destroyed and left in a landfill before his arrest. One of the computers belonged to Kimberly, so Keys left nothing suspicious on it, but the laptop was both a wealth of information and a huge source of confusion. On it was hundreds of photos of people, various ages and races. Most of the photos were attached to missing person news articles, some were on missing person flyers, and others were pulled off social media. Mixed in with the photos were pictures of Samantha. Detectives were left wondering just how many victims Keys really had. Oh, shit. You've got me thinking serial killer here. Is that going to do it for us this week, Kitty? That is it, yeah. We'll pick up next week. Part three? Part three. I think it'll be the last part, but I can't guarantee that. Ooh, have we done a four-parter before? I don't know. This could be episode 99, 100, 102, 103, 104. All right, guys. Well, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to send us a message at fourcornerscrimecast at gmail.com. That's F-O-U-R cornerscrimecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fourcornerscrimecast, on Instagram at fourcornerscrimecast, on Twitter at fourcornerscast, and at fourcornerscrimecast.tumblr.com. And don't forget to give us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, and check out our website, fourcornerscrimecast.com. Head over there for a nearly complete episode list, or to give us a suggestion for an episode that you want to hear, or get your free sticker from our merch store just by typing the code Bingo Bango at checkout. We'll ship it out to you for free. And just so you guys remember, if you're being kidnapped and you see police, just yell. Just yell for the cops. Yeah doesn't matter it's like double jeopardy you can't just make a reference to that because you heard it last episode <laughs> all right guys talk to you next week see ya adios motherfuckers i want to see this yogurt marinade make that chicken fall apart in your hand what kind of yogurt do you use i hate you guys <laughs> <laughs>